With infection and viruses being at the forefront of our minds at the moment, we're so pleased to welcome Dr. Emma Wiley as our guest for this Muslim Voices podcast. She studied medicine at Cambridge University and is now working as a microbiology consultant in the NHS. In 2017, Emma was granted an infection control fellowship by the Healthcare Infection Society and is also an active member of the British Medical Association Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Advisory Group. She's also campaigning for more inclusive dress code policies in the NHS. Welcome, Dr. Emma Wiley. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. What were the reasons that led you to pursuing a career in medicine? So I had a natural interest in the sciences growing up. Um, and as I got older, um, I started to think about kind of science and, and medical fields. Um, and uh, my parents were very encouraging as well of a career in medicine. So um uh, yeah, and then with a bit of work experience, decided to to make the leap. Fantastic. I think not enough emphasis is actually put on work experience and getting a taster of what the actual career itself is like on the job rather than just the theoretical side. Yeah, that's true. And I think um, probably the best career advice I would give people um, is to, you know, if you're thinking about a career in medicine, to, to go and, and shadow a junior doctor and actually get a taste of, of what it's actually like. Because I think if you uh, find that aspect of it uh, satisfying, then um, you'll enjoy uh, a career in medicine. Practically, how would they go about um, seeking that work experience? You can often um, approach uh, other doctors who are working in trusts local to you. Um, I think there's a lot more policy and process in place now than there used to be, um, but consultants plus um, HR departments can help. Um, and I think... Um, it still helps to be a little bit opportunistic. So for instance, if there's something that you can offer, maybe you can take part in an audit um, or a quality improvement project. Um, then I think people will be uh, very kind of happy to have um, passionate and enthusiastic and young people on board. How did you find the whole experience of training to be a doctor? So, I mean, it was an absolute privilege to be accepted um, to, to study medicine. It's, you know, it's, it's such a prestigious career. And, and I was really lucky, alhamdulillah, to be accepted to, to Cambridge to study there. Um, but uh, it's also a very challenging and demanding career as well. Um, and certainly at Cambridge, it was very competitive. You know, there, there were lots of people who were all kind of jostling for, for position. Um, so it's definitely a career that you need to be prepared for. Um, and recognise that it will, you know, take uh, quite a while. It's a good six years of, um, of training. Um, and, and the clinical training placements are also um, challenging. They really test you to your limits. But um, I think that it provides a great opportunity to develop a whole range of um, career skills, people skills, time management skills, um, and leadership and team working. Um, so there's really kind of no better training for, um, uh, for, for self-development. When it came to specialising in one particular field of medicine, why did you choose microbiology? One of the best pieces of advice that uh, anybody ever gave me about career choices is to really kind of sit and break down within your working day, which are the parts of the day that you most enjoy? Um, what do you get the most fulfilment out of? And I realised as a junior doctor, I really enjoyed discussing cases with other doctors. I really enjoyed the sort of diagnostic dilemmas and thinking through a case. And I think microbiology and infection as a specialty 
is very much about detective work. You often start with the bug, you know, you've grown a bug and then you kind of go back and try and figure out sort of where it's come from and, um, and how it's kind of got there. Um, so I kind of like that sort of diagnostic dilemma um, and the slightly more academic um, side of microbiology. Um, and, uh, and what also appealed was the sort of the, the fact that you could have a bit of a work-life balance. Um, you could sort of design it in any way that you wanted to. So if you wanted to pursue research, you could. If you wanted to go into management, you could. Um, there was lots of flexibility about how you deliver the service as well, whether you kind of want to um, do it by a telephone or whether you want to be clinical. So, um, and, and I also, um, it sort of reminded me of some of my lab training when I was at university as well and kind of agar plates um, and bacteria, which I found, I mean, they're, they're absolutely beautiful when you look at, look at things under the microscope. Um, so uh, it, it just fascinated me as a specialty. Okay, mashallah, I've never heard bacteria being described as beautiful. Could you elaborate on um, what you actually mean by that? Yeah, no, they're absolutely stunning when you ground stain them down the microscope, you know, so we have two main uh, colours for bacteria. Um, so the gram, the gram positive ones go purple um, and the gram negative ones go pink. Um, and it's a way of distinguishing the sort of different types. But when you look at them down the microscope, there's so many different shapes and sizes. Um, some of them can actually be recognisable by, by what they look like. Some of them are kind of corkscrew and some of them are wavy. Um, and, and actually, if you look at them on, on the plate as well, um, each different bacteria kind of has its own colony shape. Um, and uh, you naturally actually detect some of the... Um, aromas shall we say that some of them are there are certain types of bacteria that smell like caramel for instance so it's a it's an amazing kind of microcosm of um of activity oh that's amazing they have a scent <laughs> yeah i mean that's essentially body odor um is anaerobic bacteria so um yeah absolutely and do you feel that actually through um seeing that kind of aspect of your work that it's it helped strengthen your iman because it sounds quite amazing when you're talking about how even something that sounds so simplistic for a layperson as bacteria is, subhanAllah, so amazing. Yeah, I mean, I particularly found um, when I did my master's in microbiology, which is something that all trainees or most trainees do, um, I found it very kind of imam boosting, sort of thinking about the different things within the... Um, the Quran uh, and within the Sunnah that protect us, things like, you know, nowadays, um, quarantining, um, isolation, um, that's all sort of set out in the Sunnah, um, hand hygiene, you know, being um, probably the single most evidence-based intervention, um, and, you know, avoiding handshaking. There, there are many things that, um, uh, that are associated with um, the Quran and the Sunnah that I think protect us um, from infection. Um, and there's also a number of um, infections that are associated with um, porcine origins from pigs and so on, uh, mixing um, different species of, um, of animal in the same place. So, for instance, um, swine flu was associated with both pigs and uh, birds within the same area. So th there's lots of things, I think, that Aberdeen um, protects us from. I did hear a quote once that it's um, a, a little knowledge of science makes you a disbeliever a good understanding makes you a believer. And I think just from the few examples that you've given now, it shows that actually there's so many miracles that scientists can see through their studies and through the work that they do, 
that subhanallah it's evidence of the beauty of the creation of Allah yeah absolutely I think I think that if you kind of have that mindset and you're coming at it and you're and you're looking at it through that lens then then you really see the the beauty and uh, the divine wisdom that's associated with it I probably would add a caveat which is that some of some of the things are I suppose they're hard to evidence through randomized controlled trials which is kind of our gold standard um, in medicine um, but I think that that not everything um, that you can kind of measure uh, things can be true but you don't need you know you don't have to be able to measure them so I think I think that's part of what we what we've lost in science is that ability to kind of balance um, intuition and art with science I think science tells us the how but not necessarily the why yeah absolutely absolutely yeah so in microbiology, um, whilst you've been working in that field, what's been your career highlight? Um, I, I think the most, um, I suppose, uh, in, enjoyable and, and stimulating sort of part of my training um, was doing an infection control fellowship year. Um, so I became the Healthcare Infection Society ALIF Fellow in 2017, um, and it provided an opportunity to do research, audit, quality improvement projects, um, really kind of design projects from scratch, um, meet with lots of different people in lots of disciplines, um, publish, um, share um, ideas via sort of posters and oral presentations. Um, it was a great year. Um, and one of the things that I did was develop um, special sort of uh, experience in qualitative research so interviewing people um, on the subject of antibiotic use and antibiotic prescribing um, another thing that I did was a quality improvement project on um, sepsis so um, E. coli bloodstream infections um, I did an audit on C. difficile um, which is a type of sort of um, antibiotic induced diarrhea um, and then the dress codes work um, was was progressed during that year and I was sort of fortunate to have the the time and actually really good geography working at UCLH I was in central London to meet with lots of key stakeholders and organizations and and move on the the dress codes work. So you mentioned dress code within the NHS could you expand on what you've currently been doing in regards to that? So this has been a very very big piece of work um, that first began within the British Islamic Medical Association in 2015. Um, We we were approached at BEMA by a theatre supplier um, who wanted to produce a bespoke um, basically Muslim head covering, a single-use disposable hijab for surgical theatres. At the same time, one of my friends was kind of telling me a little bit about Beamer and, you know, said, really, this is a great organisation to join. We need to do some work on bare below the elbows and and hijabs in theatres because Muslim women are having a really difficult time over this policy and it doesn't fit with our faith. Um, And uh, and at the same time, I was kind of looking for something that would kind of bring together my interest in infection control, my interest in the dean. Um, and and an opportunity to kind of work as part of a team and and develop some of the sort of teamworking and volunteering skills. Um, So we basically formed a working group um, that started to look into this issue. And um, it was prompted actually um, by, uh, well, the thing I think really kicked it off for me was that I was really interested in um, bullying and undermining in medicine because I'd read a paper in the BMJ Um, that found that risk factors for being bullied were being female, being black or ethnic minority and being junior. 
And I thought, wow, Bema must be full of, you know, people like this. So I started asking questions about bullying. You know, have you ever been bullied within your career? And um, what came back was very much stuff about bare below the elbows and infection control, which really surprised me because I thought that people would kind of talk about, you know, appraisals and senior managers and, you know, performance management. Um, but actually what, what women started to say is that, number one, because of bare below the elbows policy, um, that nurses um, and doctors across the NHS were really scrutinising Muslim women and when they weren't bare below the elbows, sort of so they, they didn't have their forearms exposed um, uh, as part of this kind of national policy that, um, you know, they, they were kind of getting difficult looks and they were being told that they had to had to roll up. Um, there were Muslim women who were taking off the hijab because um, they couldn't actually wear a hijab in theatres because of some of the treatment they were receiving. Um, and there were Muslim women kind of leaving their placements, um, moving on to other hospitals or, or even thinking about leaving medicine completely because of dress codes. So you became aware of the problem and you saw the effect that it was actually having on people entering the career. So what steps did you then take to, to change that policy? I think what we realised was that a few scattered experiences probably wouldn't make enough of a case for change. And so we decided to conduct some formal research um, at the British Islamic Medical Association's Women's Conference. And um, so we basically um, gave out a questionnaire to uh, 84 women um, and gathered their experiences of both bare below the elbows policy and also um, head coverings in surgical theatres. And we asked them questions like, um, are you aware of any um, policies for Muslim women? Because there was actually a national um, policy for bare below the elbows, but but we had a, had a feeling that uh, people hadn't been told about this um, for, for Muslims. Um, we asked them about whether it had impacted their career pathways. Um, and what we found was between 14 and 16% uh, of participants um, had actually experienced a negative impact on their career because of dress codes. And we asked them about alternatives, whether they, for instance, would wear a single-use disposable hijab as a solution. Um, and we also just asked them about their experiences um, and what we found was that um, half of Muslim women in that sample had experienced problems wearing a hijab in theatres um, and uh, that things like sort of feeling bullied or feeling um, sinful uh, or like they were compromising sterility came up. There was a lot of kind of shame based language around around the hijab. Um, and. Um, you know, I found that particularly interesting because actually from an infection control perspective, there's no evidence that what you wear on your head uh, impacts on surgical site infection rates. Um, so, you know, the question is kind of where are these feelings of shame coming from that, you know, they're not they're not evidence based. Um, so, um, you know, we were really concerned by some of the comments around career impact. You know, you had a number of different women. I think it was seven in each category were saying things like, you know, surgery is my dream, um, but because of people's um, responses to it, I've decided to go into general practice. You know, people saying other people don't make this easy. I really wanted to do obstetrics and gynecology as a career, um, but, um, you know, I've chosen to do general practice instead because of dress codes. Um, or people saying I chose to do, you know, GP so I can cover my forearms. And so we took um, all of this data and all of the comments to the British Medical Association um, and, and made a case to, um, to change um, what we were doing. 
um, alhamdulillah, that then led to a national roundtable um, with NHS employers and about 20 stakeholders um, from across the country, um, which was the beginning of some change. So could you go into more detail about what the below the elbows policy actually is? Yes. Um, so um, basically, bare below the elbows policy um, is a national, so it's an NHS wide policy um, that was first um, rolled out in 2007. Um, and it's the idea that any healthcare professional who enters essentially a ward space, any ward, hospital ward, has to be bare below the elbows. So they have to um, reveal their forearms. Um, and, you know, obviously that uh, contradicts the Islamic guidance of only having your face and your hands exposed. Um, but this essentially was mandated across the NHS in 2007. Um, and, uh, and Muslim women were not involved as, as stakeholders in the consultation. In fact, I don't think it was anticipated uh, that it would affect Muslim women. Um, but by 2010, so many Muslim women had had uh, difficult career experiences and were thinking about kind of leaving the profession that the Department of Health then sat down with the then MCB, it was known as the Muslim Spiritual Care Provision, and they produced a paragraph um, in some refreshed guidance in 2010 that provided a range of options for Muslim women, such as three-quarter length sleeves or disposable oversleeves. Um, and, and this guidance was then put out in 2010. I think the challenge has been, though, that the communication strategy around that 2010 guidance didn't reach um, many Muslim women. And so when we sat down, um, we, I mean, I actually Googled the guidance. That's how I discovered that it existed. Um, so, you know, our, our sense is that Muslim women were not aware that there are a range of options and there is national guidance um, that protects them. And so in terms of the British Islamic Medical Association and the recommendations that you therefore made, um, how was it different to the initial policy that was provided for Muslims? So we had two pieces of work. One was to make people aware that national guidance existed um, for bare below the elbows. The other part really was to um, ensure that there was some guidance for head coverings in, in theatres. Um, so um, following the roundtable um, in 2017, it was agreed with NHS England and NHS Improvement that we would draft um, a joined um, national dress code policy um, that it would be multi-faith, so it would also include um, Jews and Sikhs who may wear other head garments in theatres. Currently, there is no national guidance on head coverings in surgical theatres and faith. Um, so we worked with the roundtable um, for the past couple of years. We've been working with NHS England, NHS Improvement and NHS Employers and the British Medical Association to draft um, inclusive and safe um, uh, infection control policy, um, uh, which will allow uh, healthcare professionals from different backgrounds to wear um, head coverings. And so this will also include Muslims and Sikhs um, and Jews um, uh, you know, within this. And the guidance will basically say, when it, when it comes out, that you can wear cloth head coverings in theatres as long as they're changed when they're soiled and they're washed at 60 degrees. So when you conducted the research and then you approached the British Medical Association with your findings and your recommendations, what was the response like? 
it was really positive and supportive, actually. And I have to say the British Medical Association have been really good. Um, they were really interested in the findings. Um, you could tell that I think it emotionally resonated with them that women weren't being given equal opportunities here. Um, and um, they've been really organised. They've been um, kind of very proactive um, and, and sort of taken this forwards and have, have kind of kept us in the loop and communicating with stakeholders. I think um, it's interesting because uh, up until this piece of work, I don't think the British Medical Association had done that much within the faith space. And I think that's a really important gap generally within NHS equality and diversity. Um, you know, I, one of my other, well, I have other roles. So for instance, I now sit on the British Medical Association Equality Advisory Group. Um, and I'm also part of the General Medical Council BME Forum, uh, which has now become a wider equalities forum. So I get to go to different meetings um, and faith isn't talked about that much. We talk about race, we talk about gender, we talk about LGBT and, you know, we talk about disability. Um, but one of the things that this project has then helped us to do is to widen the conversation to faith um, and include it, you know, because it is legally included as, included as a protected characteristic. So I think that it has taken time to really build this um, and to, to sort of be able to, to be comfortable speaking about faith. Um, but um, I think face-to-face -face conversations and really explaining the impact that this is having have really helped um, organisations uh, engage on this topic. I think that's really interesting because that tends to be a common theme that sometimes the doors are actually open if we were to try to approach them. So as you said, once you had done the research and you had taken the message to the right people or body who could change it, um, it was actually a positive response, which a lot of people wouldn't necessarily anticipate. So it's about creating that open chain of communication and presenting the problems that you're currently experiencing to the right people who can bring in change. Yeah, I think, um, you know, that's a really important point. I think number one is, is to actually go in with a positive mindset and expect a positive outcome. And I think sometimes we, we sort of rule ourselves out before we've even started. So I think, um, you know, a lot of the time, some of the feedback that I had was, you know, don't approach various organisations. They're not going to be supportive. They're not going to be helpful. Um, but alhamdulillah, you know, they have been. Um, I think... Uh, it also depends on, well, I think there's a few factors. I think the single most important thing um, is intentions and, and, and why you're doing something in the first place. Um, and, you know, to be really crystal clear that if you're doing something for the sake of Allah, um, that, you know, that you, you are intentional about it. And, and, and to keep that dialogue with Allah, you know, to constantly, throughout the past few years, we've been making dua, um, you know, that final hour of Friday, you know, we've been... Um, you know, sort of making dua and connecting with Allah over it and asking Allah for success. I think the second thing is, um, you know, taking the means. And I think that a face-to-face -face conversation uh, is much more powerful and effective than, for instance, an email. Um, so, you know, I think we've got to find ways of actually getting in the room with people and having those face-to-face -face conversations, explaining what the problem is, explaining what the impact is. Um, and just connecting, connecting with people as, as human beings. And I think they understand situations a lot better when that happens. Um, and I think the third thing is being persistent. So, you know, expect that there will be challenges, expect that people may not fully understand the faith agenda or they may not understand why it's important. 
um, you know, some people have actually said, well, faith's a choice. So why, you know, why would you defend it? But I think but by having these kind of open conversations and by um, trying to avoid being defensive where possible and just understanding that people may have a different perspective, you can you can move things on um, significantly. Absolutely. And I think the, there can only ever be um, a change of understanding if those open and frank conversations happen. Sometimes it does come from a place of um, just lack of information about what our faith is or what we require. It's very difficult sometimes for policies to be created if our voices aren't in there to give our view across. And I think that's so crucially important and why what you've done is so inspirational because you've been able to see the problem and to have a voice and bring a voice to the table to say, this is what we actually need. I think, I think unless we articulate what the challenges are and unless we kind of speak openly about what it is to be a Muslim or what it is that needs to happen, um, then those changes can't take place. I think Islamophobia makes it very difficult for, um, for Muslims to speak out and to say, actually, you know, I need to pray Jum'ah on a Friday or, you know, I need to be able to cover my head and just to kind of state it as it is. Um, but I think that unless we get to a place where we can do that, um, then then we can't get to, to the solutions that are required. But I, I think it's a two way thing. I don't think that all the onus is on Muslims, for instance, to, you know, go out there and kind of soldier on. I, I think that there have to also be, you know, compassionate um, uh, cultures that are created within the NHS. I think that, that, you know, leaders have to signal that they're open to these wider conversations and really create a climate where people can speak uh, about equality and diversity and really express what they need. So I think it's a two-way thing. Um, but yeah, um, you know, unless we're able to have those open conversations, we, we can't progress. When did you start wearing the hijab? And do you think that impacted your career in any way? I put on the hijab uh, in 2009. So at that point, I was I just finished my junior doctor uh, training. I was um, an SHO. SHO stands for Senior House Officer. So it's a second year doctor. And I just applied to microbiology. And I did it at a time when I'd moved. So I was, uh, I did my training, initial training placements in East Anglia. Then I moved to London where it was a, a different um, you know, different working uh, environment and a different set of people. So I decided that that would be an easier time to do it. So I wouldn't have to kind of have loads of explanatory conversations. Um, Alhamdulillah, it's actually been fine. Um, I had a lot of apprehension about wearing the hijab, um, you know, and I think this whole um, uh, dialogue around Muslim women wearing the hijab because the men in their families have told them to really needs to be debunked because um, it, it was that was the opposite of my experience and it's the opposite of many Muslim women's experiences. Um, you know, I wore the hijab um, uh, really against the, the wishes of my father. Um, and and so I had a lot of apprehensions about doing it. I, I wondered how the relationship would be between myself and him. I wondered, you know, I, I grew up in a household where kind of people said, well, don't talk about religion and politics at work and in public spaces. And so I had a lot of fear to work through. Um, but alhamdulillah, actually, you know, overall, it was a really positive experience. Um, and I actually found that, uh, you know, you're much you're much more likely to get a salam from people because people know you to be Muslim. Uh, you know, brothers are more likely to kind of, you know, say sister and to open the door for you and treat you respectfully. 
Um, so uh, I, I found the experience was much better than I was anticipating and it enabled me to kind of connect with the Ummah. And so you didn't feel it impacted in any way on your career prog- progression because obviously um, you're, mashallah, a consultant. So you're at a very senior position and you're a visibly Muslim woman. No, so it's interesting. When I applied for microbiology specialist training, um, there were some other candidates there. And one of them was um, a, uh, I think she was a niqab wearing Muslim woman. You know, she was, she was in black head to toe. And I was sort of toying with the idea of wearing the hijab at that stage. Um, but I decided I wouldn't because I thought, you know, I've got a much better chance of getting this, this placement if I don't. And so I looked at her and I thought, oh, you know, subhanAllah, like, you know, what chance has she got, you know, doing an OSCE, which is like a live examination, you know, where you're kind of going from station to station, you're um, interacting with people. Um, I, I thought, you know, she's just got no chance, has she? And people are going to discriminate against her. And, and subhanAllah, she got her first choice placement. And I think I got my third and I think at that moment, I realized, you know, who is it who is in control of the world? You know, it's Allah. It's not, you know, we, we have all these fears that will, that, that will be held back. But ultimately, it's Allah who provides our risk. Um, that said, you know, I think that discrimination is a real thing. Um, and I, you know, one of the things that I've been doing over the past few years is, is looking at intersectionality and looking at the experiences of women, women of color, and then when you add in, I think, the unmeasured dimension of faith, um, you know, I think that it does exist and, and, and we are treated differently um, and that can't be denied. But I think that we need to collect the data on this so that we can use it to drive uh, improvements. Um, in my own experience, I've not noticed it holding me back, but it is certainly possible that people may uh, interact with me or, or, or treat me differently because of it. Mashallah, congratulations on being on the cover of The Doctor, which is the British Medical Association's monthly magazine on developments in the health sector. What changes are you hoping that the NHS will adopt for a more inclusive dress code? I'd like to see the the national dress code policy rolled out. And um, it's something that we've been expecting for quite a while. Um, I think the original uh, actually, the original plan was to have it back in 2018, um, but we're, we're still waiting for it. Um, but it's certainly we, we've had indications from NHS England that it will come out this year. Um, and that national dress code policy will provide guidance for bare below the elbows and faith and also head coverings in theatres and faith. And it will be multi-faith. It will be inclusive and it will also be safe. Uh, from an infection control point of view and will reflect the evidence, you know, that the evidence really is for hand hygiene, effective hand washing um, and that, uh, you know, forearms, covering the forearms and head coverings in theatres don't actually, there's no evidence that they impact on patient safety. Um, What I'd like to see, uh, what we'd like to see is um, a robust communication strategy um, that is that is better than uh, the one associated in 2010. I think we need to make sure that key, you know, stakeholder groups, faith groups actually hear about this guidance. And um, and what I'm hoping is that by actually having it in writing, um, that that will actually protect staff from, from faith backgrounds so that they don't feel victimised when they're challenged. Um, and I think it's worth saying that the current kind of political climate around infection control makes it really difficult to speak out against this. And this is, this is part of the issue is for many years, people have said, well, there's no issue. 
no no Muslims have spoken out against bare below the elbows. They're not saying it's impacting them. Therefore, there's no problem. Um, but the issue is it's been the elephant in the room because if you speak out against it, um, you, will be, you will get reported to your consultant, to your medical director. When CQC inspections, so the CQC is the Care Quality Commission, it's the inspectors of hospitals. Um, when they come round and inspect hospital trusts and they see people who aren't compliant with the policy, um, whether it's for faith reasons or not, then that, that can become escalated um, through trust management. So it's very, very political. It's very, very difficult for people to speak out. And I think it's important um, that uh, people realise that just because Muslims aren't talking about something or complaining about something doesn't mean that it isn't an issue um, and doesn't mean that there isn't discrimination going on. Um, and ultimately, what, what I hope is that this piece of work, and I think it already has, but I, I hope that it will lead to wider conversations about um, inclusion and, and belonging within the NHS. So, yeah, I think that's interesting because there's obviously the problem initially of bringing about change and then ensuring successful impl implementation of it. So do you foresee problems in that regard? Yeah, I think I think that all of these things need to be multi-pronged um, and we're not there yet within the NHS. So changing a policy is really only one part of a kind of behaviour change toolkit. Um, and, you know, yes, you can put it out in writing, but will people actually, you know, behave differently? Um, I, I think there is a much wider conversation that needs to be had about how we manage diversity within the NHS. Um, I think, for instance, we don't have a comprehensive reporting mechanism now. So if somebody experiences Islamophobia within the NHS, how are we logging that? Where do they go? Where do they access support? Um, and a lot of the structures that currently exist, such as the British Medical Association helplines or the Medical Defence Union, um, are, are, are not conversant with faith. Um, and they don't necessarily have all of the tools that they need to be able to incorporate sort of faith sensitive approaches. Um, so there's a lot of work that needs to happen there. Um, and, you know, even on things like race, I mean, other forms of discrimination, um, there, there are still big gaps. Um, you know, there was a, a racial harassment in medical schools charter recently that identified that we, we don't have very good mechanisms for reporting racial discrimination in medical schools um, and that action isn't always taken. So. Things are improving, but I think we've got a, a long way to go. Um, but, I, but I hope that by actually at least having these conversations at national tables that, that we will start a process. Do you currently feel as though enough is being done to tackle Islamophobia within the NHS? No, I don't think there is actually. Islamophobia in the NHS is not currently on any agenda. Um, it's not currently part of the equality and diversity um, landscape within the NHS. Um, and I think it's really important that we do start to talk about it. Um, whenever I do go to conferences on things like race equality and other equalities, a number of the attendees mention um, two groups of people who really struggle within the NHS. One is black men and the other is hijab wearing Muslim women. And they, and they really specify it like that. A number of kind of very senior people within the NHS have made that point. Um, and so I think there is this vacuum. Um, and I think that lots is required to break that down. I think that we need some research specifically within this space. I think that we need metrics. So at the moment we have um, an amazing uh, intervention called RES, which is the Workforce Race Equality Standard. 
every hospital in the country has to report on how um, it is treating its uh, black and ethnic minority staff, what levels of seniority they're getting to, whether they're experiencing bullying and harassment, whether they're given, being given equal access to training and opportunities. We need an equivalent indicator for faith. Um, and uh, I think also there is a role for the faith medical organisations. So within the British Islamic Medical Association and, and work that we're beginning to do now with the Muslim Doctors Association to really highlight this, to talk about this as a significant issue um, that is affecting our workforce, because I believe that we are losing talent um, within the NHS. We're losing people who don't consider applying for careers in the NHS because of things like dress codes. People, we're losing uh, talent within the NHS. We're losing people who um, are considering careers within the NHS, um, but don't because of policies such as bare below the elbows. Um, we're losing workforce to experiences of bullying and undermining. Um, because people don't function as effectively when they don't feel that they're treat being treated as fairly. And it affects them both physically and mentally. You know, I think that we are seeing, um, uh, you know, absences due to due to discrimination that aren't currently being logged. Um, so I, I think that faith medical organisations have a real role in talking about this. Um, but I also think that, uh, you know, other organisations such as the BMA, uh, such as the General Medical Council um, can definitely do more in this space. Um, and, and what's good is that there is a, a real interest in, in collaborating uh, on this agenda. So I hope that the work will, uh, will expand in the future. Could you tell us a bit more about the British Islamic Medical Association and what your aims are, what you're hoping to achieve? BIMA is a, a voluntary group uh, that was formed a few years ago. Um, it has now thousands of members um, and it is for all British healthcare professionals. So it's not just for doctors and dentists, that, that's how we began, but it's for all British healthcare professionals. Its motto is um, unite, um, inspire and serve. Um, and it has a number of flagship projects. Um, so one of them is Beamer Lifesavers, where for one day every year, um, volunteers go out into mosques and teach people basic life support. Um, there are... Um, uh, other projects I've been involved with, such as the Ramadan Initiative, um, which is around educating staff on faith competency issues, so safe prescribing in Ramadan. And we educated thousands of, of healthcare professionals on why Muslim patients fast Ramadan and how they can um, combine fasting with, um, uh, with looking after their health. Um, most recently, there's been a big... Um, uh, look at uh, COVID and um, there's been some sort of awareness raising. We've also done quite a bit of awareness raising um, on uh, health promotion. So for instance, the, the recent COVID um, outbreak, um, they have produced guidance um, on, on COVID and faith um, and for instance, guidance on uh, Jum'ah um, and the transmission of, of infectious diseases within, within Muslim spaces. Um, they've got projects on organ donation um, and, and the dress codes projects are sat under the advocacy team within Beamer. So that's all about kind of how Muslims uh, sort of represent um, uh, health and faith to external organisations. And how did you yourself become involved um, with the British Islamic Medical Association? One of my friends actually told me about it. Um, and she sort of mentioned that there was this new organisation that had formed that will represent healthcare professionals and and faith and that they kind of have that um, authentic faith angle 
Um, so I got involved. Um, what I really have enjoyed about BEMA are the webinars that they do. So they do professional development webinars, often on a Sunday morning on kind of faith and health topics. Um, it's also been great socially. So we have um, conferences that take place. There's dinners. Um, there's, there's usually something for, um, for Eid. Um, and there's also regional groups as well. So you can get to know other healthcare professionals within your area. That's really interesting. Um, could you tell us a bit more about what the Lifesavers uh, Day is? Yeah, so one day every year, um, Bema sends its volunteers out to um, masjids, to mosques all across the country, and um, teach the local community on um, basic life um, support. So it's things like if somebody chokes or if somebody collapses in front of you, um, what to do um, to uh, to get them help and to to start to give them um, emergency first aid. Um, and if you are based at a mosque and you're interested in getting involved, then you can register your interest by um, emailing the Lifesavers email. Um, so it's lifesavers at britishema.org. So that's britishima.org. So Emma, what advice would you give to any Muslim woman who's either training to be a doctor or is already qualified and feeling that a career in the NHS is not for them due to these issues that you've mentioned, such as the dress code? First thing I'd say is to make those feelings known um, and to seek out the right people to make those known to. If you are working as a, a qualified um, healthcare professional, then there should be an equality and diversity team within your trust. Um, if there isn't, then HR, so human resources or the director of workforce um, will be able to help or will be able to put you in touch. Every hospital also has a chaplaincy team um, and they are actually not just responsible for the well-being, the spiritual well-being of the patients, but they also look after staff. And I think that role is under um, advertised. So contact them and let them know exactly how you're feeling, exactly what your experience is um, and aim ideally to have a face to face conversation, because I think these these subjects are quite sensitive and, and can only really be conveyed face to face or at the very least on the phone. Um, and I think also inform your line manager, um, inform if, if you're um, if you're being trained, then in, inform your you know, educational supervisor, whoever that person is responsible for your training. Um, because I think unless these things are logged and unless these things are raised, um, then nothing can be done about them. Um, and um, I think, you know, it's just it's such a shame, isn't it, that if something like this, uh, you know, holds someone back. Um, so, you know. I think it is important for you to evaluate what's important to you. And if you don't see a way forwards, then it's, of course, understandable. But I think trying to find um, a solution um, is better than than just leaving. Um, and I think that if you're struggling with it, then, you know, contact us as well. So if, if none of your local support is working, you know, you've been through your union as well, then contact the um, British Islamic Medical Association. Um, so we're, we have an e uh, info email inbox as well. Um, so it's info at britishema.org. Um, so info at britishima.org. Um, and, and let us know about your experiences. We're all very grateful to the NHS and its wonderfully dedicated staff. And these are particularly extraordinary times. And they've shown us how important it is to have a national health service. But how do you think that we can ensure the future of it? I think by campaigning for it and lobbying for it. So, for instance, um, if there is a hospital within your local region that might be about to shut down, then actually to, to join the, um, the lobby group, to join your MP and to support it existing. 
Um, we are increasingly going to lose A&Es um, and regional hospitals as, you know, the overall direction of travel is towards cost efficiency, efficiency savings. So people are shutting down um, local um, centres um, and increasingly forming kind of bigger regional centres, uh, which means that you will have to travel further for healthcare. So I think any um, attempts to lobby for that will help. Um, and I think also, um, you know, we have so many Muslims involved in the NHS. You know, we're so the NHS is, you know, the, 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 the biggest employer within the UK. But we also have loads and loads of Muslims working within the NHS. And I think it's really important that we actually get involved with some of the kind of medical politics um, because it affects so many of our lives. And I think that unless we're part of that, that structure um, and you can do that both as a healthcare professional, but you can also do it as a as a lay member. So, for instance, um, you can attend um, your local hospital's um, open meetings and hear about what they're doing um, and have a voice that way. And often Muslims are underrepresented at those meetings. Um, or, for instance, there are even um, paid roles. So non-executive directors are people who hold every hospital accountable um, and they're supposed to hold the board accountable and we know nationally that um, ethnic minority um, uh, citizens are underrepresented as non-executive directors so find out whether you can apply um, to do that it's very similar to being a school governor but it's it's the equivalent for the NHS um, so there's plenty of opportunities to to get involved. You've raised a very um, interesting point because here at MEND we one of our main aims is empowering the community um, and in particular with regards to politics and media and as you said most people aren't aware that they can lobby for change to interact with your local MP to communicate your views on an issue that is important to you can bring about change and very often does and actually in fact for example, a recent example um, of amend action alert that was sent out in regards to bill that was going through Parliament um, and that essentially was allowing for um, Muslim cremations of any of the people who passed away, the Muslims who passed away as a result of the COVID virus. And as a result of the action alert that men sent out to say, contact your local MPs, to, to notify them that you are not happy with this and that you want an amendment to be to be made. I think we had roughly about 17,000 um, hits on our website as a result of that action alert. And an amendment was then tabled by the government to acknowledge that faith needs to be um, paid due regard by any local authority when making burial preparations. And it's exactly what you said, that if people are aware, are aware that if there is a, for example, an A&E closing down in your area, then speak to your local MP and change can happen. Yeah, that's a great example of, um, of something that people can do and uh, an immediate action that was taken. Um, I, and I think, yeah, there are so many mechanisms because um, within politics, there is that obligation to ensure that there is consultation. Um, but part of the challenge is that, um, you know, politicians, both nationally and locally, don't always know how to reach Muslim communities. And uh, they often will use the mosques, um, but the mosques are you know, already very busy. And so there's a lot of um, consultations that they probably decline or can't respond to. 
Um, but yes, I think, um, yeah, I think it's really important to, um, you know, decide what it is that you're passionate about and then, and then get involved with it. So whether it's, you know, if it's health and wellbeing, um, both locally, um, you know, actually contacting your MP about specific issues. There are a range of meetings within local councils. So for instance, there's a health and wellbeing board. There's always work that's going on on health inequalities um, regionally within the council. And a lot of these are open meetings that you can attend. Sometimes you can even kind of um, get into them uh, on, your, um, on your iPad or your, your computer at home. They're often, you know, televised. Um, and, and you can also get involved nationally with, um, you know, health and well-being agenda items. Um, so, for instance, select committees nationally, um, any expert can feed into. Um, so if you are an expert within a field, then you can be called um, and you can also uh, raise issues that you think need to be discussed. Absolutely. And I think that's why we're so passionate here at MEND about empowering um, the Muslim community to know how to raise issues directly with their politicians. Because as you said, they don't necessarily know how to approach the Muslim community. So therefore we need to make people aware of how to approach them because they are representing us. And with that awareness, it empowers the community to be able to get their voices heard and to bring about effective change. So thank you for raising that point. Thank you. So Emma, apart from your campaign, what other issues matter to you most and why? Another uh, piece of voluntary work that I'm very passionate about, which is Muslim women. Um, I am founder and vice chair of an organization in South London in Merton called Muslim Women of Merton. Um, and we were established in 2015, really to give Muslim women a voice and a seat at the table. And we've done a whole range of projects. So most recently, we've been looking at Muslim women in politics. We've done uh, quite a few local um, events and, and campaigns. So most recently, we've been looking at the role of Muslim women in politics. Um, we did a politics awareness workshop um, locally in South London. Uh, we also did a tour of the House of Commons with our local MP. Um, and um, we've been working with MCB um, on this agenda. Um, we, we're really interested in advocacy. So um, we have Muslim women at a range of council meetings. Um, so we sit on the Faith and Belief Forum at our local council, where we hear about all the different things that they're doing for um, health and well-being um, and uh, community cohesion. Um, we sit on the local police advisory group as well. So um, there's something called independent advisory groups that were brought in after the death of Stephen Lawrence to represent the views of the community. Um, and we're part of that. Um, and we also do sort of community cohesion events, so coffee mornings. Um, we did a um, sort of successful Macmillan coffee morning. Um, I think it raised something like £2,000 locally. Um, and we also did um, something called Diversity, which was a kind of interfaith tea event that invited people from all over Merton um, to, um, to enjoy teas from across the globe and traditional sweets. Um, and it was really just a kind of community building um, event. And we've done projects on health and well-being, health inequalities. We've had kind of health health fairs. Um, it's it's really nice to be part of something locally, and um, to to really kind of feel your local community, to get involved. And and I think for me, one of the biggest drivers to do work like this 
was just to kind of um, to create a new normal because I think that often the way in which um, Islam is spoken about in the press can make you feel like the whole world's against you and, and you know, Islamophobia is kind of rife. And actually by getting out of your house and getting to meet local people, you realise actually most people are, are nice people and, um, you know, they want to, to connect and, and they actually respect diversity um, and respect people from different backgrounds. So it's helped me to just feel normal and to feel kind of loved and... and um, and to give back as well to the local community. So what are your hopes for the future, both personally and professionally? I'm really passionate about equality and diversity within the NHS, um, as I'm hoping this podcast <laughs> will reveal. Um, so I, I'd really like to see um, faith within the NHS um, discussed. I'd like it to be mainstreamed and I'd like there to be um a whole range of um, activities that kind of that promote faith within the NHS and, and promote inclusion and belonging. So professionally, um, there's lots of different routes that you can take once you become a consultant. Um, you can go down a sort of management path, become a medical director and, and sort of go that way. You can get involved in education and training. Um, you can get involved and take on professional roles within, for instance, your union, like the BMA. Um, or you can get involved with research and quality improvement, or you can do a kind of mix of a mix of the lot. It's still early days for me. I'm only about six months into the consultant post. So my plan at the moment is to, to get experience of a, a range of different things and then sort of make that decision down the line. Um, but it would be great to see, um, I think, more Muslim women and hijab-wearing women um, in senior roles within the NHS um, and, and getting involved in organisations and representing um, uh, both, you know, intersectionality, really. So, you know, gender and race and religion um, within within every sphere. Um, so I hope that um, by getting involved in some of these roles um, that it may pull in um, other women. Um, and I hope that other women will will apply for, for senior posts. Inshallah, well, you're genuinely very, very inspirational in everything that you've done and everything you've managed to achieve. Mashallah. And thank you very much for, uh, for the opportunity. I'm really glad that these podcasts exist. And I think it's really important that we um, create spaces where um, Muslim women um, and, and Muslims in general can talk about uh, what they're doing um, so that it, that it encourages other people. Jazakallah Thank you. So, mashallah, you're at the top of um, your career ladder. So how do you um, ensure that you can maintain a healthy work-life balance? I work part-time which definitely helps. Uh, I think that the NHS can be very demanding otherwise. So it really helps actually having a limit on the number of hours I do. Um, and that then gives me time to spend with family, you know, with my husband and, and my son. Um, it, it gives me time to kind of give back to the community and, and kind of do volunteering projects. And I don't think any of the, that would have been possible without working part time. Um, I, I actually think um, that it's something worth considering. I think, um, so most recently, actually, they've they've changed it so that anyone who wants to work part time within the NHS can. In the past, you used to have to kind of apply and beg for it and have to be either pregnant or a carer and so on. Um, but I think it's really valuable um, because, uh, yeah, I mean, part time within the NHS is the equivalent of full time and full time is overtime. So um, and yeah, so on, on days off, then I'll go to circles, um, meet with friends, you know, um, 
generally if there's a coffee london that's going a coffee morning that's going on in south london i've usually organized it so um, i do like to get out and about and um, connect with people mashallah i think that's fantastic advice so it's good to see that the nhs are actually really flexible in that regard yeah i'm really pleased that they're they're changing things i think it's really important i think they've come to recognize the levels of burnout within the nhs as such that if they want to retain their workforce then they've got to um allow for, for different working styles and who knows, with all this COVID stuff, I think online meetings and remote working may become um, more common. Um, so it's good to see there's there's a range of options. And I think that's really important um, to raise awareness of that for Muslims that are potentially looking to enter the career, but are thinking, how would I be able to balance um, my home life and and this kind of intense career? So that's very, very good to know, mashallah. Yeah, and increasingly within all specialties, um, they are they're looking at things. So, for instance, surgery is an area that women um, and Muslim women are underrepresented in. Um, but there are all sorts of initiatives that are going on to try and make that easier. So, for instance, um, you know how you come back to work after uh, maternity leave, um, making it easier for women to to breastfeed um, whilst combining with with work. Um, it's still challenging um, and, you know, women may still encounter some of the old fashioned attitudes, but um, the, the organisations, um, the big organisations are generally behind you and there are more and more mechanisms to work flexibly and, and to work in different ways. So I think watch this space. That's absolutely fantastic. Well, Jazakallah Khair, thank you so much for um, for joining us today and for the inspirational stories about everything that Allah Baki have managed to achieve. And for the positive information about where the NHS is heading with these sorts of things. I think it's very important for us to be made aware that actually, because of people like yourself, change is happening. Alhamdulillah, I think anything is possible if you're persistent uh, and if you're committed and, and you've got the, the intention to, to serve Allah. Um, and I really hope that more and more people uh, come forwards, um, figure out what it is that they need, figure out what it is that um, really kind of lights them up, what their passions are, and, um, and, and do more and more um, in, in whatever space, whether it's equality and diversity, or whether it's kind of, um, you know, working within a career space, or whether it's, um, you know, being a stay-at-home mum. I think it's really important that, that Muslim women kind of find their, their own paths and uh, that they choose what it is that they they want to do inshallah and if any of our listeners wanted some more advice or um had any concerns then what was the email address or contact information for um bima it's info at britishima.org so that's info at britishima.org the other thing I will mention is that we um, have a specific section on the British Islamic Medical Association website, uh, which is all about dress codes. So you can read our research paper um, that was published in the British Medical uh, Journal. Um, you can read uh, a lot of our posters that were taken to the Infection Prevention Society conference with all the data and the audits. Um, and we've also got two toolkits, so one for bare below the elbows and another for hijab in theatres. Um, and it provides you with all of the guidance. Um, it provides you with a template letter so you can write to people in your trust um, and, and raise the issue. Um, and it provides you with a flow chart with support um, for who to contact if you're getting stuck. Um, so do have a look at all of that. And there's also examples of um, policies. So um, 
basically uh, one thing I didn't mention was that um, at University College Hospital London, we changed our local policy um, to be more inclusive for faith groups. Um, and, uh, and that actually won a regional award. Um, and so that example policy can be rolled out at any trust in the country. We're really keen that people um, who are working in hospitals um, get their policies changed all you need to do is say that there is national guidance and please can we follow it locally and here's an example, please insert this paragraph um, and then job done and you've actually made things a lot better for any um, person of faith that follows. So the website is britishema.org so that's britishima.org. That's brilliant and I'd encourage everyone to have a look at that website um, if they do have any further queries specifically in regards to the NHS. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Jazakallah khair. Dr. Emma Wiley, for joining us today and giving us a great insight on what it's like to work within the NHS as a Muslimah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you for all your vital work and bless you and your family. Amin. We at MEND would also like to take this opportunity to say thank you to everyone working in the NHS for everything you're doing during this crisis. May your reward be immense. If any of our Muslim sisters working in the NHS or anywhere else have been victims of Islamophobia, whether that's workplace discrimination or hate crime, then please do get in touch with and report this to MEND's dedicated Islamophobia response unit at www.mend.org.uk forward slash IRU. Inshallah, we hope you found this podcast of interest and we look forward to you joining us again for the next one of our fascinating Muslim voices. Please do remember to subscribe to us with your podcast provider and follow us on at Mend Community and at Muslim Voices on social media. Muslim Voices. <laughs>